You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Amit Jain, who is running a combination of Flask and Python to help power a vehicle appraisal and auctioning service called TradeRev. Amit, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick, for having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what TradeRev does? Of course, I'll be happy to do that. I'm a uh, software professional with around 15 years of experience in the industry. I basically graduated, uh, did my post-graduation in wireless communication from Indian Institute of Technology, IIT Delhi, India, way back in 2005. I've been in the industry uh, since then, uh, played different roles from a a developer uh, to program manager, a manager, tech lead uh, in in different industries, um, oil and gas, um, networking, uh, telecom. And over the last uh, three or four years, I have sort of chiseled my way into machine learning, data-driven products. Um, My whole focus has been on software product uh, development. And uh, the tech stack I've been been exposed to is like the regular C++, Java, Python, uh, AWS, and uh, whatever libraries are there in the ecosystem. Uh, In my last role with TradeRev, I was uh, leading come managing a machine learning team. And I was basically uh, responsible for the uh, machine learning product delivery, which is, you know, starting from the uh, ideation phase with the business, like business coming with some problems, then collaborating with the data engineering team, seeing, you know, what data is there, what ETLs I need vetted, collaboration on models with the data scientists, then uh, taking those models to production, which involves you know um, having a Flask service uh, as a REST endpoint, uh, the AWS architecture uh, for our machine learning ecosystem, like what components are being used and what's the optimal structure and stuff like that. A mix of uh, 70-30 split between technical and managerial responsibilities. Um, and uh, to give a brief overview of TradeRev, TradeRev is basically a auction platform for uh, used cars, a dealer-to-dealer B2B space. So uh, a car uh, is, is a physical entity, and if a dealer wants to buy it uh, physically, it's a, it's a very inefficient system. So TradeRev has introduced a platform where um, the cars are listed on the uh, application and then dealers can bid on it. So it's, it's like very similar to an eBay concept. And where machine learning comes is that the couple of uh, verticals like a recommender system based on the previous history, you know, uh, what cars I'm interested in, uh, a price, re- uh, price prediction, which is a regression model, and then computer vision to figure out from the video of a car, what are the different views, like whether the person who's listing a car is actually listing a car or is listing some some other thing. This is a brief overview of you know uh, what my experience is, what I have been doing in TradeRev, and what TradeRev is. So, how long have you been developing those services that make up TradeRev? Uh, it's been two years. I've been doing it. 
Okay. So is it just you working on that or do you have a couple other developers? Oh, no. So, so we uh, had a big team. Like when I joined, the team was pretty small, around, I'd say, four to six people team. And over a period of time, uh, it has grown to 10 people team with attrition and new people joining here and there. So overall, it had a mix of software developers, ML engineers, data engineers, data scientists, and a QA person as well. So it's a team, it's a team effort. Nice. Yeah, you have a, a well-rounded team. Oh, yeah. Now, when it comes to the trade rev itself, do you want to let folks know maybe like how much traffic they deal with? Like how many visitors do they get per month? A conservative scale, I think they were around a thousand cars uh, being traded a day. I mean, the successful trades, but you can think of around eight to 10,000 auctions or bidding happening every day. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a substantial amount. I'm trying to like visualize in my mind like a thousand vehicles being uh, traded in person. And that's a lot. <laughs> so this was across US and Canada. And I think roughly around 150 to 200,000 was the numbers last year. So you mentioned that you have a couple of different services behind the scenes to basically to make up what TradeRev does. Uh, so what motivated you to use Flask and Python to build these? I, I think the sort of de facto standard for data science, machine learning, with its you know beautiful support of libraries, uh, deep learning libraries, as well as scikit-learn, you know. So one is the ecosystem. And now the data scientists, machine learning engineers, most of them are very comfortable hands-on with Python. So one aspect is the skill set, you know. The second aspect is Python is a very you know, beautiful language, very succinct. So so it, it, it helps you express your code beautifully, right? Now with our microservices, it's a REST-based services, right? So for REST-based services, if you're gonna use Python, there are a couple of frameworks which are available. One is a Django and another is Flask and a couple of more. So what, you know, uh, works with Flask is it's a very lightweight framework. It's very bare minimum number of lines you need to get your Flask server up. So that's one of the cool things which I liked about Flask. And that was one of the things to, you know, uh, start slow, start very uh, basic and then uh, boost it up. So that th those are a couple of things for Flask and Python, uh, which decided uh, these frameworks and languages. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Flask too, where it's like you can just throw up that app.py file, about five lines of code, and you have a, a start of an application. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned machine learning on the Python side of things. Uh, which libraries do you use for that? So, um, for uh, primarily, scikit-learn is one of the fundamental libraries which uh, I think machine learning has. So, we, we were using that. Then TensorFlow uh, and Keras uh, for deep learning. Um, I think we were also using a couple of uh, libraries for recommendation system. I don't remember it right now, but uh, they were open source libraries for recommendation systems and for computer vision, we were the, the regular CNNs. Okay, so let's zoom out then a little bit and maybe talk about some of the individual microservices that you have. Like, did this project start off where you just had one service that you built out and then you broke it up into multiple as time went on, or did you kind of just start off with multiple from the beginning? Okay, so that's a great uh, question. And just to give some insight, 
last year in Toronto Machine Learning Summit. So, so uh, Toronto has yearly machine learning conference. Uh, I presented one talk there, which covered a lot of aspects of this. Uh, so uh, maybe I can uh, share that on uh, with you over LinkedIn later on. So when I started uh, with uh, the role, what we had was a couple of microservices already in production. The, the regression prop, the regression service and the recommendation service, but they were a monolith. Uh, they were not uh, really microservices. They had just different endpoints, but they were tightly coupled. So one repo which had all the machine learning services as well as the ETLs and everything was within the same repo, uh, same deployment, uh, stuff like that, right? So classic uh, spaghetti code, classic code smells where you fix a bug in let's say service A and it breaks something in service B and there is no way to figure out. And slowly over a period of time, I basically created independent microservices, independent repos. So trying to you know separate our concerns. So ETL goes into as a separate service with its own deployment, unit test cases, everything, uh, its own database and the regression problem goes into its own microservice, its own yeah, infrastructure, and recommender goes into its own separate infrastructure, separate repository and stuff like that. So breaking a big monolith into multiple independent microservices is where I landed up. Nice. Yeah, that must have been a fun project. I, I would imagine this code base is probably pretty large, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like we don't need to get into super details, but like, I guess, what, tens of thousands of lines of code, maybe even more? Oh, more. Uh, my rough uh, estimate is it was around 80K to 120K. So that's the rough number of Python uh, code was there. And I think it was spread across maybe um, 200 or 300 uh, files. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a big project. So when you started to unwind that into separate services, did you already have like a, a well-established test suite in place? Oh, no, 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 no. So uh, the one of the big challenges was there was not even a single test case there. Everything was all manual. You know, uh, a bug comes and someone is fixing the bug and someone is pushing to production now. There is no smoke test. There's no sanity check. There's no unit test. So that was one of the big things. And... When I started on, on breaking down things, unit test was one of my big focuses that, you know, um, we don't want to get into a state where we push things to production and it, it, it just breaks and no one knows where it is. So over a period of time, added a lot of unit test cases, integration tests, feature tests, as well as smoke sanity test to make a, you know, a robust product. Yeah, that's awesome to hear because I know you know, trying to break apart a monolith or any type of app without any tests or, you know, trying to refactor it is like one of the hardest things to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and just to give one uh, number, the code coverage is usually taken as a good measure of how how robust the code is. So the code coverage uh, we, I mean, our team achieved was around 86% with unit testing and all the other testing we placed in. And it was a big, big achievement for us, like from 0% code coverage to 86% code coverage. Yeah, that's a huge, huge, huge difference. And for a code base that size, like 86% is like, is an amazing feat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's one of those things, right, where you get into like, 
diminishing returns with test coverage is like, yeah, if you want to jump from 86 to 88%, then it's like you have to do a million crazy things that may compromise like the readability of the code. Oh, of course, of course. That, that That's very uh, succinctly put by you. And and there's a point where you, where we like to, you know, stop that, you know, we have achieved a good state. Does it really make sense to take a step further or we put that time into developing new solutions? You know, so, so that's a trade-off, which sometimes we need to do. Yep. So you mentioned that these services are uh, RESTful APIs. Do you happen to know what library you used for that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one was REST Plus uh, for taking the input flasks, uh, the, the input parameters, validating them. Uh, then uh, there was Unicorn server. Other was, since we were heavily using AWS, uh, we were using the Boto3 library for interacting with uh, S3 or ECS or ECR or whatever our ecosystem was. Uh, and uh, I think one of the uh, other things which we uh, used was Locust. So Locust is basically a performance testing tool for your API, which basically means that if you want to do a load testing of your API, you can create a Locust uh, server and pump uh, your uh, API with lots and lots of users and it, it simulates the real users. So these are a couple of you know uh, Flask libraries associated which we used uh, for our production service. Okay, so overall, are you happy with the uh, decision of picking those? Uh, yes, I think um, I like to put some context into it. Uh, for a machine learning service in production, scalability is important, uh, performance is important, but the accuracy is more important. So which means that the output is much more important than the time it takes to give the output. So if a service returns in one second and it returns a great result, it's it's much better than a service returning in you know 100 millisecond with a bad result. So this is different from a traditional software where you know you have to get quick responses. So even though we could have you know gone with some other service, but our focus was more accuracy and you know, a lightweight service for which Flask was like the right choice. And I'm quite happy with that. Nice. Yeah, because it seems like like an auctioning system would have some pretty strict requirements on even performance as well, right? It's like, you know, a lot of those auctions on eBay or whatever, don't they go crazy for the last like 10 seconds of bidding just while everyone hammers the site to try to win? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. But the, see, the, the, the thing is the price, uh, so that's the auction part, but this, regression or the this price prediction is before the auction starts so this is not a, a, a like a real time it's more of a near real time that whenever the auction is listed that is the time the initial price comes up right and after that all the bidding is above this recommended price so we have a leeway of like one millisecond to two millisecond in which we need to return the result and for that cases flask was excellent Nice. So you mentioned that you use the Unicorn web server. Did you look at any other web servers as an alternative before you picked that one? Like UWSGI or something else? I think I did, but I, I liked Unicorn because it was very, you know, compact, very, very, just with a couple of lines, we could scale our product. So, um, and, and 
the requirement was just to uh, scale it up sufficiently that you know we can uh, support let's say 10,000 cases and if uh, maybe if we had more requests then I would have uh, talked uh, thought of a different server but Unicorn was great very lightweight uh, very similar to what Flask is yeah no I'm a big fan of it I use it here too and like you say a couple lines of configuration code is all you need yeah, uh, yeah. I think my my production Unicorn config is like literally like six lines of code that just configures things like the worker and the log format and little things like that yeah exactly exactly pretty cool so maybe now would be a good time to go into the rest of your tech stack. Like, for example, are you using things like Celery and Redis in this project or no? Uh, no Redis. We were using, uh, so the code was Dockerized. And within the Flask app, what we were doing is wherever we need a cache, we were using the Python's available LRU cache, least recently used cache. Most of our models were, were in memory. So so no Redis, but we were using Dynamo DB sort of as a cache uh, uh, because it has a DAX, which is an accelerator in front of it. So it, it's, it's also very similar uh, and, and, and it can scale much better. Okay, and what about uh, your primary database? What did you use for that? Uh, so it was primarily a SQL database, which is a Aurora cluster, RDS uh, SQL database think about as an auction or a price or you know images or something right pretty much this is all supervised learning and pretty much this is all structured data so uh, rds fits the bill uh, whereas for let's say if it's an nlp service which is unstructured text data then uh, maybe a dynamo db makes more sense uh, okay that makes sense now when it came to that sql database did you choose mysql or postgres so I think uh, it was uh, MySQL and um, I I didn't had a save. I mean, it was already uh, there before I joined. So uh, maybe because the team was very comfortable with MySQL. Right. And that's kind of the beauty of working with Python too, right? Like I would imagine you're using the SQL Alchemy library to connect to that. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. So like from your point of view as a developer, you know, unless you're doing something really deep in the woods where you're using something specific to Postgres or MySQL, you can kind of just sit back and treat those two databases as the same, basically. So, you know what, this 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 reminds me that the initial code which I, which I saw was, it was developed by people with, you know, technology at that time with their limited resources and they did a good job, right? But uh, what I realized is there were SQL statements which had 10 plus joins and they had there were sql statements which were like uh, 50 to 75 lines of code like one sql statement having 50 to 75 lines of code is is, is really tricky to understand yeah my eye is twitching just thinking about that yeah <laughs> and then i introduced uh, sql alchemy which is basically a orm uh, for databases and then everything was so beautiful you know you don't have to worry about reading raw SQL, just plug it into a builder pattern for SQL Alchemy and it looks so pleasing to the eyes. Yeah, yeah, SQL Alchemy is uh, one of the best ORMs that I've used across like any language. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you are using Docker, this whole thing is Dockerized. Are you doing that in development as well? Uh, yes and no. So uh, the initial state of development is basically do it on the local laptops and stuff like that and then the once things are fine dockerize it and push it to the cloud and then 
do further development on the cloud. So it's a two stage process Do some exploration locally and then push it to the cloud for the further development state. Interesting. So locally on your laptop, you're actually not using Docker. You're just running to Unicorn straight up, maybe in like a virtual environment or something like that. We were uh, setting up the Unicorn locally without Docker and with Docker as well in a different project. So uh, for a computer vision project, we were uh, developing the, uh, like we were running the Unicorn within Docker. The the, the problem, uh, what happens is with Docker running locally, sometimes there are dependencies on databases and other stuff, right? And you don't want to spend too much time in resolving or orchestrating those dependencies. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Because I know if you're dealing with PG 2 which is a Postgres adapter for Python, on a Linux system, if you're using Debian or Ubuntu, you have to apt install a specific library called libpqdev. But if you're running Windows or a Mac, it's like, well, now you have to go on like a rabbit hunt here and, and try to figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are there any other components of your app too? Like, are you are you running Nginx in front of GUnicorn or no? I don't think we were running, running Nginx. Or maybe maybe to rephrase that, because like, I still don't know much about what you're running in production. Like you mentioned, you're using AWS. Are you just running this on like straight up EC2 instances or are you using one of AWS's services? Oh, no, no, no. So there are two ways. Uh, one is we can use a Lambda function, uh, which uh, hooks to uh, API gateway and API gateway is your entry point uh, and your Lambda function is basically calling your Flask handler. That's one way or a Guinicon handler. The other way is uh, you dockerize everything, push it to the container registry, which is a Docker registry. And then there's a, a managed EC2 service. So which is a container service, elastic container service. Oh, so ECS. Yeah, ECS, and it runs a Fargate cluster. That is, again, uh, accessed via the API gateway. So sort of API gateways are entry point to this service, and API gateway routes it to the various you know, internal load balancing, and then the load balancing is uh, spread across these services. Okay, so maybe just to rewind a little bit, do you want to fill folks in with the details of what Fargate allows you to do? So, of course, I think that that's a, a good thing you reminded me. In AWS, people are mostly aware with EC2, which is nothing but a virtual computer or virtual compute in the cloud, right? But the problem with EC2 is you have to manage everything yourself. You have to put security patches. You have to put latest version of, let's say, Ubuntu or whatever you have. And then you have to put all your libraries, whatever dependencies are there, right? And now if you want to manage service, which is you don't worry about what's happening in the underlying hardware, all you're concerned is about your business or business logic or code, right? So in that way, you can use Fargate service, which is basically a managed virtual machine for you. With what it means is that you just uh, upload your code as a Docker container. And whenever you want to run your service, the uh, Docker basically boots up in a Fargate environment, which is basically a managed EC2. Underlying it is still EC2, but it is managed by AWS for you, which means that you don't have to worry about all the installations and security patches and whatever it is, right? You're, you're basically getting a managed hardware on which you are running your app, which is in a Docker. Okay. So when it comes to 
allocating resources with Fargate, how does that work? Because like, for example, you might want to say that, okay, my app needs to run on a server that has, you know, four gigs of RAM and like two CPU cores or something like that. Do you get that flexibility with Fargate without actually having to set up the server? Oh, uh, yes, yes. So good thing about Fargate is it has scalability as well. And uh, the application has a task definition. A task definition is basically saying that for my application, how much resources, which is number of CPUs and the memory I want to allocate, right? And that's one step. And then you can attach a auto scaling policy to Fargate. Like what we did is you can put lower threshold and higher threshold in the auto scaling policy. So assuming your CPU utilization crosses 70%, which means that you are getting more traffic, right? And then the auto scaling policy will spin off another instance within that Fargate cluster and which is you have another copy of your instance and the lower threshold is assuming you have 10 uh, in in peak demand so let's say start of day you have normal traffic you had five uh, services or five uh, like five copies of things running right horizontal scaling and around mid noon your services like you know peaked up and from five you are uh, running 25 uh, 25 copies right so this is Fargate has done it for you because auto scaling policy says that traffic has increased create more copies now end of the day traffic has gone down now the auto scaling policy has a lower threshold if my threshold goes beyond 30 percent let's say I start killing my services so at the end of the day I don't need much of resources so auto scaling you know tells Fargate start killing these services. So Fargate copies are killed. So this is basically elastic demand and uh, resource availability. So all these things are very well managed by the uh, AWS. All we need to do is figure out how much resources we want to allocate to our app, as well as how we want to do the auto scaling policy. And uh, one of the uh, insights is the locust test framework, which I was talking earlier about, that is uh, really great to you know figure out your traffic patterns and simulate your traffic pattern simulate your uh, the auto scaling policies yeah no it sounds like you're making very very good use of the cloud right the ability to spin up servers quickly when you need it and then shut them down when you don't yes yes and uh, i guess just to tie all of this together then what fargate i guess you're just responsible for allocating you know whatever resources you want in that task definition file which is like a configuration file and then you configure or maybe just initially set up a load balancer in front of that and the auto scaling groups and you just let AWS do the rest kind of? That, that's correct. So uh, what you have to do is provide the configuration file, but the parameters you have like, you know, what is your threshold? Do you want an 80% threshold spike of traffic spike of 80%, 90% or 20%? That you have to do because you have to do a lot of testing, perf like which is like, load testing or performance testing mm -hmm. to figure out what are the good values because if your uh, high threshold is not set correctly right you may lose traffic um, assuming you set up 90 percent but you actually had to do at 60 percent you will lose traffic in that so it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, a lot of tuning goes into setting the uh, correct threshold parameters but in a nutshell give a configuration file with the parameters and aws will take care of yeah, no, that's amazing. Because 
you know, yeah, you have like a lot of different dials and knobs to mess around with, but at the same time, you know, you're not sitting there like literally updating a load balancer config, like connection draining and, you know, all these complicated load balancing problems are all out of scope for you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's the beauty of the cloud. Yeah. So when it comes to using Fargate, how do you deal with managing your secrets, like secret keys and, and things like that? Um, I, I appreciate you asking this question. It's an excellent question. One of the things, you know, uh, typically I've seen is um, RDS has to be accessed during, you know, uh, the application code. And RDS is typically secured by username password, but the SQL client from application needs that username password, right? So people typically uh, what they do is they uh, hard code these username, password, everything in the config file and uh, call that and dockerize it as well, right? But that's a security risk uh, because the parameters can be known. I mean, they're in plain text, right? So it can be known. Uh, there are a couple of ways which uh, AWS provides. One is a key management service where, you know, it's a, it's a ma again, a managed service. I'm, I'm a big fan of managed services by AWS. What it means is that uh, AWS uh, gives an API where, you know, all the authentication is done by the AWS that, you know, for this particular Fargate instance or RDS, you uh, create keys and let AWS manage it. So that's one way of doing it, which is a key management service. The other way of doing it is uh, basically through, you know, IAM uh, roles or policies where you just give very restrictive policies for Fargate, assuming Fargate has to access S3 bucket, right? So the, uh, the IAM role will be just limited to this particular S3 bucket for this particular ARN, which is uh, a resource number for Fargate. So that's another way of doing it. But I'll, I'll, I'll recommend uh, KMS. Yeah. No, I, I mean, if you're going to go on a platform like AWS, you might as well go all in and, and use all the services they have because that's like the advantage of using that platform. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So I guess on that note, then, do you also use for logging and metrics then all everything that's built into AWS? Mm, so AWS provides a lot of good logging mechanisms like CloudWatch uh, metrics and monitoring, but sometimes it's it's not uh, uh, really useful, right? So what uh, we can do is basically hook up some of the alarms, which, you know, CloudWatch provides with a PagerDuty and then PagerDuty can uh, call you back, whether email or a text or whatever it is. That's one way of doing it. The other way uh, is hook up a monitoring system, which is a centralized monitoring. Uh, if I recollect correctly, I, I think it's called New Relic, which basically it's a centralized management of all your alerts and everything. So those are a couple of things which can be done. Right. Do you recall what setup you guys were using in your project? So PagerDuty was one for sure. Okay. And then like on the topic of logging and metrics, there's also like error reporting. Did you use a third-party service for that or no? Like let's say that an error happens in the code base. Does someone get sent a stack trace of that over email or something like that? It was primarily CloudWatch metrics on HTTP for uh, 500 errors or 403 errors. Okay, so now might be a good time to walk us through what deploying your app looks like. Like, how does get how does code get from your dev box into production? So initially, everything was manual. 
like run a couple of bash script and it will be deployed to whatever service it is through. but i basically uh, implemented some of the best practices which is like cicd which is you know pretty standard in a regular software development but not much in machine learning whenever a pr was merged there was uh, like before merging or like whenever the review uh, is open right a pr is open ci was run basically uh, a jenkins job which test does a lot of unit test cases and stuff like that and once everything is fine so we can deploy from you know uh, there's another deployment job which is again a jenkins job which can deploy to production from the master branch what it means is uh, creates a docker container and uh, uploads the docker container into the into the docker registry and updates the task definitions like assuming if if we want to increase more cpu for our task so we can uh, you know pass change the config file and then it gets uploaded uh, and applied to the aws so ci cd via jenkins and uh, pretty standard open source means. okay so when it comes to using jenkins is that something then that you're just running on a box that you fully manage or is it hosted somewhere i think it it was also hosted on aws but that was like managed by the uh, devops team right okay so that's something you didn't really concern yourself with like you're not using aws's managed service for ci oh no no so maybe it would be kind of cool if you can maybe walk us through how all the different aws services kind of talk to each other to accomplish going from development to production like like what services are being used in the process i okay uh, let me take a step back and you know uh, give a brief overview of what a typical machine learning ecosystem or product will look and then i can fill in the you know deployment strategy sure as i was talking earlier right we have uh, data ingestion we have pre-processing we have training and you know production service now so so think about four different modules right and if you tightly couple them there's a hard dependency you cannot change you know pre-processing and or training or whatever right so one of the uh, approaches which can be used to you know do a loose coupling is introduce s3 bucket which stores output of every stage so data ingestion can uh, store a let's say a csv file into s3 independently and then pre-processing can uh, read the data from s3 uh, have some metadata in rds and stuff like that and again the output of pre-processing can be into s3 uh, output of training can be into s3 so what happens is you can you know develop new algorithms and replace whatever service you want to if the contracts are you know adhered to so if you are programming to the interface things will not break and if your storage is s3 which is uh, which means that you can independently build and deploy services so that's the overall uh, uh, strategy now ecr is basically a container registry within aws and in, in whenever we dockerize our code right we have to deploy or we have to upload it to a, a container registry so the deployment strategy is basically twofold one is uh, any changes to the aws infrastructure uh, what it means is assuming we have one s3 bucket and we have rds but we want to add dynamo db right or we want to uh, change some parameters 
of S3. Let's say we want to add a life cycle policy. So one deployment strategy is to deploy changes to the infrastructure. The other deployment is of uh, the taking your Docker code and putting it into container registry. So for that, we typically have a Docker file figuring out all the dependencies and everything. Then write a couple of bash scripts, which basically pack your Docker container and then with the particular AWS account, copy it to that uh, ECR. And uh, all those things can be done within a Jenkins job with proper permissions to the AWS account. Because uh, if Jenkins is not uh, able to access the AWS account with all the parameters, it will not be able to deploy it. It will get a, uh, I think, 403. So uh, in a nutshell, two-way deployment strategy, one is for your code or application to ECR, and the second is uh, any changes or updates to the AWS infrastructure. Okay, and now for that infrastructure changes, do you have that all set up using CloudFormation? Uh, I was uh, planning for CloudFormation, but then we already had Terraform used by other teams as well. So we, we stuck to Terraform. Okay, and maybe uh, just to give listeners a heads up on what either of those tools are, do you kind of just want to do like a TLDR on what they are? Oh, of course, of course, I'll be happy to. Uh, so, um, you know, infrastructure is basically a cloud resource. What it means is that rather than having a local laptop, you have some compute, some storage on the cloud. What it means is very simply, you have an EC2, which is your CPU, and you have S3, which is your storage, right? Now, everything has uh, parameters like how many CPUs you want, how many memory, uh, how much memory you want, how much gigabit or terabyte of storage you want, right? So all these are various parameters. And when you bring 2000 plus services of AWS into picture, everyone having, let's say 20 different options. So the number of permutation and combinations is huge to manage manually, right? And with initially when we start a project, uh, we do something manually like, okay, this is my ST, this is name, this so many, you know, uh, keys and primary keys and secondary keys and stuff like that. But as and when your project grows, it's very difficult to manage it. So there's a concept called infrastructure as code, which what it means is you can manage your infrastructure using scripts. And one of the way to manage is Terraform. So you create all of your infrastructure as very similar to, you know, a, a bash script or a Perl script or Python script. There's a Terraform script. So you mentioned that, you know, this is my S3, this is his policy, this is ARN and stuff like that. And uh, that's how it is. And CloudFormation is a managed uh, service for infrastructure as code, uh, which AWS provides. So uh, my recommendation is uh, if you have a big project, go via infrastructure as code, whether it's Terraform or it's, you know, CloudFormation or whatever. Don't do manual uh, updates or changes. Yeah, totally. Because I, I know I just set up uh, CloudFormation for a client because that's the tool that they wanted to use. But yeah, when you're on AWS and like you have to set up an EC2 instance and security group and a VPC and a load balancer and RDS and all this other stuff, it's like if you went in there into the web UI and just started clicking around, it's like suddenly you have to write like 3,000 lines of documentation with like 100 steps and everything where CloudFormation or Terraform, it's just like, you put that in some JSON or YAML code or whatever and run it and you're done. 
Yes, and uh, we were actually doing a lot of manual things initially, and then we moved over to Terraform. Even though I'm not a great great fan of Terraform, but that's fine. Yeah, it's definitely way better than the alternative of not using either of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, CloudFormation wins any day. So on the AWS side here, do you have any tools in place to help you plan for disasters and unexpected events? Like, how does RDS get backed up? Do you have to back up any user files, like pictures of their cars or whatever? So uh, I think those those things were handled by the DevOps team. We just had to tell them, you know, this is our mandatory database, which we cannot lose. And basically, typical disaster recovery, take a snapshot. Uh, and that's it. But the other rest was taken care of by DevOps. So we're kind of wrapping up here, and I like to end things off with my favorite question is, what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building and deploying this app? One of the important lessons is, you know, start slow, expect failures around the road. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky journey, but then, you know, uh, plan accordingly. Um, if there is no unit test case, start adding unit test cases. There will be failures here and there. Don't be afraid of failures, you know, and it's, it's a vast field. Don't uh, look for a perfection, like, you know, I want the perfect tool for each and everything. It's not gonna happen. Your, the, the approach should be fail fast, iterate fast, build something, get vetted on it, and follow a lean startup approach. Build something, get some feedback, iterate on it, and at the end of let's say one year you will see that maybe what you started was a you know maybe not an optimum design but over a period of time you have solved the customer problem as well as build a robust system so don't start a perfection from day one or optimization from day one have a goal of solving the business problem first and rest things will follow yeah, no, that's great advice because it's so easy to get hung up on perfection and you end up rating zero lines of code and solve zero customer problems. And then you get upset because it's like you're not getting anything done. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, Amit, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was great having you on. Oh, thanks, Nick. It was great talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? Uh, Sure. My Twitter handle is ml underscore A-M-I-T. And uh, my LinkedIn profile is uh, slash N slash J-A-A-M-I-T. And uh, I, I am an active user of both Twitter and LinkedIn. Happy to answer any queries which people have or happy to network as well. Nice. Yeah, I'll for sure drop links to those in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.